And we are going to start the show today talking about that attack that took place in downtown Vancouver this past weekend. And we're hearing from one of the victims of a machete attack. He explained to Global News exactly what happened and what let, left him with very serious head injuries. And he started stabbing with a big machete. He shot out this little girl's finger. She looks like she's 12 years old when she's 20. She looks like she's 12. He chopped her fingers off, chopped her in the head, shot me in the head three times, shot my back and my neck. And um, he apparently sat some other people in there too. But he just went crazy and he said, I do want to fire. What I heard was a pop, I heard a, like a, an explosion. And as he went in the hallway and it smelled like gasoline. So he poured gasoline in his room and he lit it and threw him on fire. He went and started stabbing people. Are you okay? What? No, I'm not. I got shit in my head. Look at my head. All right, so he was saying chopped there. He uh, is one of the victims. He has several staples in his scalp, but he uh, said that he left a hospital. That uh, was victim Cecil Cochran. Uh, you might have heard some of his comments as well on the Mike Smith Show, and he was speaking with Grace Key, a reporter at Global News. Uh, we also heard from another witness to this attack who, who uh, explained in great detail, and I get that these details might be disturbing to some, but just to get a better idea of how gruesome and serious this attack was, was. Not only was Cecil Cochran, who you just heard there, slashed in the head, having to get emergency treatment for a very serious cut to the head. Uh, you heard him talk about one of the other residents of that building above the Roxy in downtown Vancouver. A woman, uh, she's a very small woman. He said 12. She's not a 12-year-old. He said she's about a 20-year-old woman, but a very small frame. Her fingers were chopped off with the machete, the machete-wielding suspect. Uh, this witness also described how another person was sliced on an angle uh, from the neck shoulder area right down his chest, and another person as well slashed right from the base of the neck and, and right down his front. This is, I mean, horrific, doesn't even begin to explain what happened at that building on the weekend. We have a statement from the mayor of Vancouver as well uh, following that attack on August 6th. Right now, though, we're joined by Nolan Marshall, who's the president and CEO of the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association. Nolan, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you for having me this afternoon. Uh, How do you respond or when you hear the details of what happened and what unfolded Mm -hmm. on Granville Street on August 6th? Uh, first and, and foremost, we, we center uh, the victims, uh, and that, that's where our, our, our greatest level of concern is. Uh, it's an unfortunate situation, uh, and it's, it's one that we've got to address both the short and long-term uh, causes for. How do we even begin to start doing that? I think, again, you've, you've got to, uh, whenever we're talking about mental health or addiction or houselessness, uh, oftentimes we think about those from the perspective of uh, businesses, which I, I certainly represent. But I think in order to uh, arrive at the situation, arrive at the solution that's appropriate for the community, you've got to remember to, to, to center the people that are living in that experience, the most, the most vulnerable. Uh, and I think long term, the province, the city has to figure out how to provide appropriate housing for those individuals uh, with complex care solutions, with uh, mental health professionals with healthcare professionals uh, and reconsider whether or not uh, housing the most vulnerable within an entertainment district uh, in substandard conditions is really the best thing for those individuals. 
And the mayor's statement that he released about this, he released a statement yesterday about what happened, saying that one of the parts of the statement says that that many major cities across BC, including Vancouver, have been bearing the bearing the brunt and resulting tragedies of an under-resourced mental health and justice system that endangers the safety of the community, first responders, and law enforcement. Is that kind of passing the buck, though, to say? that it's the provincial government, it's the justice system, it's the mental health system that aren't doing their part and that that's what's leading to this? I wouldn't characterize it as passing a buck, more so just acknowledging uh, the reality of the the conditions on on the street that we're seeing right now, Uh, whether it's the encampments encampments on these Hastings or whether it's the conditions in these SROs. uh, These are serious problems that are going to require a federal, provincial, and municipal response in order to solve the long-term issues. This isn't. Uh, this is certainly a tragedy, but it's not something that just popped up overnight. These these conditions that have led to this sort of tragedy have been building for quite some time. Right, and and so certainly it's not something that's going to be solved overnight. But like you say, it's also not something that happened overnight. So why do you think there wasn't more attention paid to this, so, or or people didn't see that if we didn't do something, we were going to find ourselves exactly where we do now? I, I don't know if it's it's a lack of attention. I, I think it's a matter of, of properly resourcing the problem when you when you do away with mental health supports, whether that be Riverview. Uh, or whatever it may be called in, in many communities across North America, we've seen a lack of investment in the type of facilities that properly treat individuals uh, who are going through mental health challenges, who are going through addiction challenges. And we've seen that under-resourcing of that, that solution, the mental health solution, for quite some time. And Nolan, I wanted to ask you as well, because there are so many issues here when we're talking about mental health, when we're talking about the justice system, if we're talking about repeat offenders or people that maybe are, and even even goes to things such as shoplifting, we know there are people that have been, that have had numerous encounters with police, but are still out there with that so-called revolving door. So what do you do when now, and I know you've talked about the very bad reviews on TripAdvisor and other places from tourists. Uh, people who live in the community are afraid uh, to go out. How do we deal with with that negative consequence of the reputation of the city? So I think you can you can address the one or you can address this in multiple ways. Um, when I read through TripAdvisor reviews of, of tourists, and again, I think when you when you think about solving the problem, you think about solving the problem for the people. Uh, who are experiencing living in those conditions because it's a livability issue for them. You solve the problem for the workers who are working in those neighborhoods and for the people who who live there. Uh, Tourists are not where I center uh, how I go about solving the problem. It's uh, it's great to have tourists coming into our community and and spending money, but it's a a problem that Vancouverites are experiencing uh, every day. I think one of the ways that you go about addressing it is to increase the level of support that you have for the things that are positive in the community. Uh, this weekend, we kicked off the first of four Granville promenades where we close Granville Street down during the day and invite families back to Granville Street to experience Granville Street in a different way. Uh, last year, when we did a similar event, we surveyed people on Granville Street, and 90% of the people, when we were activating the street with music, with arts, with family act- activities, with games, said they felt safer on Granville Street. So there, there are ways that you can 
you can both deal with the prolific crime problem that you should be addressing uh, houselessness and complex care for people who are dealing with mental health and addiction problems, but there are also things that we can do in our community to support those things that make the community more livable for the people who, who live in the community, that make the community more attractive uh, for people who, who visit from uh, other provinces or from other countries and who and, and make the community more livable for people who work in the community. Uh, we can make those types of investments as well. All right. Well, Nolan, we'll leave it there for today. But as always, thank you so much for making the time to come on to talk about this. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. As you've been hearing in the news today, the Federal Privacy Commissioner, Philippe Dufresne, has told the Parliamentary Committee that his office learned about the RCMP using spyware through the media. He's calling for a to create a section in the Privacy Act that requires organizations and departments to do a privacy impact assessment when any new information is introduced. And that would include requiring the RCMP to do that. Privacy is a fundamental right. It needs to support the public interest. One of the ways of doing that while generating trust is is to have PIAs uh, at the front end and um, a good process for, for reviewing them. And as you've been hearing as well, we're talking specifically about the RCMP using technology that can do things such as hacking into devices, intercepting messages, even turning on cameras and microphones remotely. And that is raising a lot of alarms. This is an issue that's going to be studied for the next two days by this Health Ethics Committee. But joining us to talk more about it now is Anne Kavukian, the Executive Director of Global Privacy and Security by Design Centre at Ryerson. University. And great to have you back on the show to talk more about this today. A pleasure, Jill. Thank you. I'm guessing that you would put yourself <laughs> in that camp of having a few, to say the least, concerns about this. Oh, Jill, I, I just find this appalling. The RCMP was has been doing this for years without any consultation with the Privacy Commissioner, previous or current. And they just think this is something that is acceptable And if they thought it was so acceptable, why did they keep it so quiet? They have been totally under the radar because they don't want anyone to know that they're doing this. It is so offensive in terms of the potential breach of accessing people's personal information. And I'm not talking about the bad guys. I'm sure they're going to get some bad guys. I sure hope they do. But they are accessing potentially thousands of innocent individuals, you and I, our communications, turning our cell phones on, uh, turning the cameras on, doing all this gathering of text messages, emails without any consent. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up and raised that issue because that's been one of the kind of rebuttals to this is uh, that I've seen or that I've heard is saying, well, if they're only doing this as part of criminal investigations or if they're doing this because it's part of an investigation that involves criminal activity or alleged criminal activity, is is it okay in that case? But is it is it like you're saying far more widespread than perhaps what anybody anticipated or thought? I, that would be definitely my my bet is that this extends the reach of this is far greater because in order for them to find the real bad guys, which of course is what they're attempting to do, you have to have, cast a wide net, and in doing so, you will be gaining access to the personal information and communications of thousands of innocent people who are just going about their business, and they deserve privacy. You know. Pro- 
privacy forms the foundation of our freedom. We have to be able to speak to whoever we want on our mobile devices and send texts, etc., without looking over our shoulder. Who else is gaining access to this information? That's completely untenable. Uh, the numbers also didn't match, and this was in uh, some information that Global News obtained. So the National Police Force said, and I think this was back in June, that these mm-hmm. devices, the on-device intercept tools or audits, uh, that they'd only yeah. been used 10 times between 2017 and 2018. Uh, but then yeah. other documents that were filed with that ethics committee uh, show that it was much higher, that it was at least of 32 course. investigations and targeting 49 devices. So. Still not a huge yes, number, but a concerning number. But it's a larger number than they said. And, and I'm betting, let's keep track of this, that that number is going to grow. And that's why I am so pleased that the uh, House of Commons Ethics and Privacy Committee is looking into this this summer. I am so pleased. <clears throat> and one of the things I hope they look at as well, <clears throat> the police said, well, they, you know, they went to the court and got a warrant to gain access to this information. I think we have to alert the courts that there has to be a far higher level of scrutiny applied to the, these requests um, from the police for warrants, because it's not—it's not like the—it's not, not like it used to be in the past where it wasn't a big deal. Now it is a big deal because they're going to be gaining access to many more people's personal information, mobile devices. And things have changed. The world has changed. So the courts have to be alerted to that in terms of when they issue warrants um, to the RCMP and other law enforcement agencies. They have to have, in my view, a higher level of scrutiny. And the Canadian Civil Liberties Association has called for a discussion of the legal safeguards as well needed around the use of this technology. So I really hope that they dig deep in this in this study that they do this uh, summer um, on the RCMP, what they're doing. Uh, we also heard, uh, this was in that same document from the RCMP commissioner, from Brenda Lucky, saying that, yes, the number was larger, uh, but she also said that these devices are only used in extremely limited cases, only used for serious criminal offences, and only if approved by a judge for one specific device, that she's saying it's not some kind of mass surveillance. But but. What do you take from that? I say trust but verify. I think we have to look under the hood at all of this. Um, I, I'm sure she intends to be forthright, but if you really scrutinize the data, that's when you really find out what's happening. And I think also, in fairness to the judges, I think they're being presented with information from the RCMP that creates a lot of fear on the part of the judges. And they think, oh, of course, we've got to issue a warrant here. That's why I think we need a higher level of scrutiny being applied to the process of granting warrants to the police, especially in order to collect text messages and emails and remotely be able to turn on cameras and microphones. That is exceedingly large. And and remember, all of this they did without consulting the privacy commissioner. Can you imagine you're engaged in all of this activity, total invasion of privacy, and you haven't talked to the privacy commissioner, it's appalling.
It, it certainly is. And I think it's that issue or that idea of, of mass surveillance. Like you said, the turning on of cameras, of microphones uh, that people feel is a huge violation of privacy. Well, it all would be, yeah. I, I would imagine. But then I would also think there, there are people like me who think, OK, well, if my phone somehow got swept up in some kind of surveillance uh, operation and one of these things, uh, I feel like people would be vastly underwhelmed with what they find unless you like looking at photos <laughs> of dogs jumping on logs because that's what my phone is filled with. Uh, obviously, that's oh, not Jill. the point. But but, but, yeah, you, but but here's the thing. You and I are very similar that way. Mine would not be very exciting either. But there may be some people who do have exciting things on that are perfectly legal, but perhaps, you know, something that they would like to keep quiet, friends that they have that no one else knows about or business that they're engaged in that is legal, but that they're just embarking on. Who knows? That's not the point. Privacy is all about the individual being in control, personal control over the use and disclosure of your personal information. That's critical. Surveillance is the exact antithesis of that. Right. Is it different than do you, as well in that I remember talking to Vancouver police about this a couple of years ago when there was a very public shooting that took place in a parking lot and the police officers wanted any cell video that people might have had of it was a police involved shooting yes. and they wanted that. And there were some people who handed their phones over, others that said, no, you can't have my phone. You're going to have to get a warrant to get it. And I remember the officer yes. at the scene said it's Obviously, it's easier for them if people hand their phones over. But he also said, we can't look around through your phone. We're looking at the video you took of this incident. And I said, but what if you're looking around the phone or what if you see something that's suspect or questionable? You're saying you're not going to look at it. And he said, no, we can only look at at what it is specific to this to this case. (sighs) Would this work that way, too, in that if there's investigating a specific? No, no. there's nothing that prevents them from extending their reach. I mean, you, you can't ensure that that's going to happen. Now, the other thing, if you talk to the police again, Joe, ask them, why did they not consult with the privacy commissioner while they were doing this? I mean, to me, the reason is obvious, because he would have laid his foot down. Uh, Daniel Terrien, the commissioner at the time, uh, has a video out, and he was very disturbed by this. Understandably, why wouldn't they consult with the privacy commissioner, other than the obvious reason of they didn't want to hear what he had to say? And we're still waiting for the information as well. Uh, um, The minister earlier said uh, they're supposed to give them more information or turn over more information to this committee by the end of August. So it sounds like we still don't even have the the full story or even a fraction of the story. Jill, if I was privacy commissioner, I would be all over this right now. I wouldn't be waiting another day. I would go and I would drive them crazy, of course, but I would want to look at everything that they have. How did they obtain it? I want to look at the warrants, how authentic they are. I want to look at everything. All right. Well, we're going to continue uh, listening and watching this uh, committee and find out what else that we can learn about this. And as always, so great to talk to you about this. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, Jill, my pleasure. Thank you. Well, there is a big vote being considered by Surrey City Council looking at approving some changes to an official community plan, and that would allow buildings located in an area known as the Surrey Employment Lands. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about this is Anita Huberman, the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Thanks so much for being here. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Before we get into the vote and kind of what's being considered and possible changes for that area, can you explain a little bit where we're talking about and what specifically are the Surrey employment lands? 
Well, the area under consideration with the public hearing at Surrey City Council, I'm at it right now, uh, is on 168th Street, um, Highway 99 corner corridor, kind of across the street from uh, the Pacific Inn Hotel, as well as uh, 12th Avenue, 166, so neighboring property owned by Fergus Creek Homes. And employment land is meant to be official job-creating land, uh, land designated for uh, commercial industrial use, uh, office space uh, to create uh, employment. Uh, and so uh, the land that is being considered today at a public hearing uh, is the developer is asking for it to be changed from job-creating land, uh, employment land, so to speak, uh, to residential uh, to create 482 townhomes. And, and what are your thoughts then? I know uh, the board is opposed to this redesignation. Uh, what would happen, do you think, if that did happen and it was changed in the official community plan? Well, number one, we are facing, not only in Surrey, but in Metro Vancouver, a shortage of employment land. And Surrey's official community plan indicates that uh, this is land designated to employment land uh, for job creation, commercial business park orientation. Uh, you know, yes, we need housing. We're supportive of housing uh, developments. But this project is going to take away important employment lands. It needs to be referred, this development project referred back uh, to city staff. And, uh, and we need to focus on creating jobs and, and having a jobs plan for Surrey in addition to a housing plan. And, and when you talk about that too, kind of the commercial aspect of it and the need for space for commercial operations, they obviously still need a lot of space. Is it shifting though as far as where people are working and if we still need the same amount of land and area when we're talking about creating jobs? Well, in Surrey, 1,200 to 1,400 people are moving uh, into the city, and that occurred even during the pandemic. So uh, with uh, what is going to be the largest population in British Columbia right here in Surrey, um, certainly we're seeing more of a shift uh, to more employment, more businesses uh, for Surrey and south of the Fraser residents. Uh, that is a good thing. Uh, and, but the thing is, you know, we need more jobs uh, at the same time, more housing. Uh, we have been uh, so slow in the South Fraser uh, in terms of provincial, federal government, infrastructure investments. Uh, we're all playing catch up in terms of uh, job creation. Uh, no one realized the population explosion that Surrey would face. And when you mentioned that too, and, and I think most, if not everybody, would agree that yes, more housing is also needed. But do you think is it better use of these lands to keep them their current designation as the employment lands rather than look at a way to incorporate more housing there? There is an opportunity maybe to do both. Uh, there are live work models where there is a mix of residential and a mix of businesses. It uh, could even be home-based businesses. We cannot remove uh, the job-creating, long-term job-creation potential of those lands. It would be the wrong move for Surrey. Um, you know, Surrey in itself, and yes, you know, we do have an election coming up, it, it needs a, a cohesive jobs plan. 
and as well in concert with that, a land use plan for housing so that people can have a balanced approach to, to their lifestyle to live, work, and play. And, uh, and, and really, we're, we're seeing a lack of that type of a plan, um, at least being communicated to the public. Uh, you mentioned you are at the public hearing, which is underway right now. What have you been hearing then from people who have been addressing council and talking to council about this? Well, this is ninth on the agenda of many projects on the docket today for public hearing. And so um, when I signed up, I think there were eight people ahead of me to speak. Uh, they're all in opposition. And, um, and so, you know, we will see how it goes. But, um, you know, the public hearing, the uh, mayor and council, they have to listen to the public. But in the end... The decision is up to them, but I I hope they listen to the public. I hope they understand that we have to ensure a job-creating strategy, uh, that we're keeping our employment lands as they are uh, with the shortages that we're facing. I know uh, Surrey First Councillor uh, Linda Annis, she is also opposed to this, saying that giving up the job-creating land in South Surrey would be a mistake. Uh, do you get a sense from the other councillors? I know the vote in Surrey tends to go uh, a certain way, but did you get a sense, or are you getting a sense from the other councillors, kind of where they stand on this? Well, I have a feeling it's going to pass, because I think uh, the Safe Surrey Coalition uh, mayor and councillors are in favour of this uh, redesignation. Um, but I think the other councillors will be opposed. So, uh, you know, that's the challenge politically that we're facing in Surrey, that they vote as a block. And, uh, and yes, there's public hearings. Uh, yes, there's concerns. But uh, in the end, it's always in favour of the block. Are you concerned then as well that it could be a precedent as far as changing the official community plan and changing it with something like this is a pretty big deal? Would it set a precedent, do you think, for in the future for other changes that would that would really be, be much different or land would then be used in a much different way than it had set out to be used? Yes, it will, Jill, because uh, we have an official community plan. But what's the purpose of having an official community plan when you don't even adhere to it? Uh, it's meant to have that balance between employment and housing and um, other infrastructures such as arts and culture, but uh, everything is always being revised uh, with, within the uh, official community plan that's been agreed upon, uh, consulted with uh, by residents. But um, it will set a precedent for sure. Um, again, there's an election coming up, so we don't know what the next mayor and council you know, how they're going to uh, deal with the official community plan and uh, housing and jobs uh, plan uh, for Surrey. All right. Well, Anita Huberman, we'll leave it there for today, but we will be watching to see what happens next with this. Thanks so much for joining us from the public hearing. Uh, Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Jill. Take care. Well, let's talk a little bit about a $50 million lawsuit. This is a lawsuit that is focused on social media giant Facebook or Meta, if you're looking at the parent company. And it was launched by a BC man who did not like the fact there was an imposter account on that site. Joining us to talk more about this battle and the issue with imposter sites and what we need to know is Andy Barrar, tech expert. You know him with Andy Andy Media. Thanks so much, Andy, for joining us. 
My pleasure, Jill. Uh, This is uh, an individual, I know he's been in the news before uh, in connection to the Souk Harbour Hotel, and certainly there have been other stories. But focusing on this one, and this is his claim that Facebook and Facebook Canada didn't do what they were supposed to, I suppose, or didn't do enough to take down an imposter account or to deal with this. Uh, So he's now uh, looking for millions of dollars in damages. What's your take on this? It's kind of a David versus Goliath story, Jill. Um, So back in March of 2020, uh, this individual from Vancouver Island was notified by his friends that he had a Facebook account. And this is surprising to him because he doesn't have an account on Facebook. So initially, he asked his friends to, to report it and take it down. And then he went through the process. If you don't have an account, you can still apply to get an imposter uh, website or account taken down. So he went through that process. But when he actually clicked it, uh, he got an error message saying, we can't process your your, uh, claim here, but please try again. So for the next three months, he kept trying and he could not get this website down. Then he took another step, Jill. He couriered a letter to the managing director of Facebook Canada and and asked to get this website or this uh, profile taken down. And even after that, it still didn't get down. It was only when he contacted the media that they finally took it down. But then he filed this lawsuit claiming damages. And what's crazy is I, I do think he has a case, Jill, but $50 million, that's a, that's a pretty steep uh, you know, damages that he's looking for. Yeah, and I was trying to find if he broke it down at any point as to how he came up with the $50 million number. Uh, and even in the, the court ruling, the lawyers for Facebook, the counsel for Facebook, I think at one point referred to it as a bit of a, pu- a publicity stunt. Exactly. I think when he had uh, messaged Facebook, I think the managing director, he mentioned that, you know, I may go to the media if this doesn't get resolved. And so the judge looked into that, but the judge still agreed that he has a case. And I think it's because he doesn't even have a Facebook account. This happens. It could happen to anybody. And he went through the standard processes of which you're supposed to take account. And Jill, I know so many people that this has happened to, especially on Instagram. There was this big fraud where people were getting a message from their friends saying, can you help me vote? And say, click on this link, take a screenshot of this of this website and send it back to me. And from doing that, their accounts would get hijacked. And they went through the same problem of going through the traditional conventional means and not be able to get Facebook, or in that case, Instagram, to take it down. So the fact that he took this all the way to the court by himself, I should mention, he's not even represented by a lawyer. So he filed this lawsuit on his own. And the judge, you know, has agreed with him, but says he needs to um, amend his claim. Uh, And you can tell from just the wording of his, his filing of this lawsuit that he's not a lawyer. So he needs to make amendments for this to proceed in the future. I think he is a lawyer, though. I think he he's uh, I think he's represented himself in other cases as well. Yeah, I don't know if he's a lawyer, but he has been involved in seven other lawsuits. So he's pretty familiar with the courts uh, at this point. But I, from from what I understand, he's not represented by a lawyer. I just right. don't know if he's a lawyer himself. <laughs> well, let's talk about the issue with that, because what struck me from this, uh, apart from wanting $50 million from Facebook, but what struck me is, like you said, we've heard of other people having this happen to them. How do you defend yourself if you are somebody, even if you don't have an account, but I would imagine you'd be even more vulnerable if you do have a, a social media account because somebody could take the photos or could e- more easily set up an account of you. So how do you protect yourself against that? 
Well, this is a thing. The, the first thing everyone should do, and I've said this countless times, Joe, is to go onto your browser, go into incognito mode, and Google yourself. You should see the kind of stuff that comes up. Even if on a platform like Facebook, you can just Google your name. If you have an account, if you don't, and you want to see what's coming up, maybe someone has tagged a photo and it's still on there. But you have to kind of be proactive when it comes to your online identity to make sure. You know, in this case, it was his friends that came up to him and told him that he had a Facebook account. So, you know, it, I think for everyone out there, identity theft could happen to all of us, especially on social media. So we have to be proactive in our approach to make sure that, you know, nothing like this is happening. You know, we don't know unless we actually look for it. No, exactly. I always find, too, there are times when you think you're friends with somebody, but then you get a friend request that appears to come from them. I mean, I guess it could be legitimate. Maybe they closed their account or started up an account again. But I always think that that's a bit of a red flag that their account has been hacked or somebody's made another account and is trying to kind of befriend the same people. Yes, that happens all the time. So if you are friends with someone on Facebook and then you get that request again, I would delay it. You know, try to contact, text that person, call them, see if everything's okay. Because the thing about these social media scams is usually it just takes one click and you think it's your friend or you're trying to help your friend out by, you know, helping on a, some type of contest. And next thing you know, your account gets hijacked and they make that same message to everyone else. I'm still Jill, trying to figure out what the end game. Obviously, they're trying to make a financial gain of doing these kind of scams. But it's so pervasive now that so many people, even people who depend on social media for their jobs, have this problem of their accounts getting hijacked and they can't get it back. And it's it's troubling in this world of two-factor authentication with our phones that they can this can still happen. And the fact that Meta, or in this case, Facebook, Instagram, what have you, don't doesn't really have a process for us to to get it resolved quickly. That that's the troubling thing, and we might have to get the privacy commissioner involved to make sure that they they do take care of us. Well, and that's what else uh, I was curious about in the, their response to this. Like you say, if this is happening all the time and so many people are getting hacked or having uh, finding out about these imposter accounts, you would think that there would be a more streamlined way or an easier way of contacting the company saying, "Hey, that's not me. Get rid of that." Especially in Canada, Jill, we have some of the best privacy laws in the world. And this is happening to thousands, if not millions of Canadians who have these social media accounts. And when they get hijacked, I think we almost need the privacy commissioner to sit down with Facebook and tell them, listen, this is happening a lot and you're not doing enough. You have to make it easy for people to do this. You know, five months, you shouldn't have to go to the media to get an, an imposter account taken down. And that, unfortunately, that just seems to be the case right now. Uh, so it sounds like, and I know we talk about this every time, privacy is an issue. Uh, I mean, no one's forced to be part of Facebook. But if you really want to be protected against this, it sounds like, once again, uh, the only way really is don't have an account. Although, even in this case, he didn't have an account. <laughs> And that's the that's the irony. And I think that's why the judge is siding and letting him proceed with this lawsuit, uh, provided that he fixes and amends his claim. Uh, this will move forward. And I will be watching this very close to see how this goes, because I hope Facebook learns from this and makes changes to their policy that allows this to be preventable in the near future. All right. We'll see uh, if any change comes from this for sure. Andy, as always, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Jill.